Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. On the show today, Michael Wheeler, the man, the myth, the anti-spoof crusader, a deep, deep history with the East Coast distribution and importation scene, but also now on the West Coast. He's repping Folk and Wheeler back here and doing some work out there. Let's hear what he has to say about what he's up to. We're here today with Michael Wheeler, good friend, inspiration, all-around good guy. Mike, what brings you to town? Um, I'm starting a new company called MFW Wine Company. It opened in June with Mike Folk, ex-top guy at Polaner Selections. Congratulations. Thank you. It's very exciting. So uh, what is that history a little bit? I mean, how did things get started for you in New York? Um, For me in New York, uh, truthfully, I met a uh, fashion model on Grateful Dead tour, summer 83. She and I got to be friendly and asked me if I wanted to moved to Paris for a month, and I was like, uh, okay. Uh, so I spent a month in Paris, and then we decided to stay together, so I applied for a job at the D. Sockland Wine Company on 178 Madison Avenue. Didn't the guy have like three names or something, didn't you tell me one time? Oh, yeah, this is, this is so funny. Here I am on the phone with the guy. I had already had a long time in the wine business. I was already eight years working for a place in Massachusetts back in the golden days started in 76. So we had so much wine, so much wine knowledge. We drank everything. So when the interview process on the phone, I, I, I passed with flying colors. He said, absolutely. You're my new manager. Come in, blah, blah, blah. So I, 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 I go in and there he is. And I said, hi, Bill Sockland. I'm the new manager. What, 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 what do I do? He's like, um, my name is Mr. Scott. Bill Sockland's not here. I was like, wait a minute. I know your picture. Right. So you were yeah. Bill Sockland. Yeah. Well, I guess this is before the time of the web page, so maybe, you know. Yeah. Well, he ended up having three aliases at the end of the day. It was Mr. Scott, Mr. Gibson, and Mr. Sockland. Did he do the Scott thing because somebody else was standing there, too? Or what was it? He, I guess one was if, you know, if somebody was trying to collect, you know, money from him. You know, oh, that, was, okay. that was Mr. Gibson ran the, the, the books, and Mr. Scott was the other salesperson. I I never really knew. I just was confused. And, you know, like, here I am so excited to take my next step in my career. And, uh, uh, you know, he goes, all right, well, you grab the broom and sweep the front of the store. I was like, 
Sounds like okay. management. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> and after that, he said, go clean the toilets. No way. He said, clean a toilet. Yeah. So, and I did that. And then he said, well, we're going to unload a container. So I want you to go in the back and help the guy, Terry, out. Was that his real name, Terry? Or did he? Yeah, help? it was his real name. And <laughs> I went back there and, you know, it was a guy from the Bronx with his hat on sideways. And, and you know, sorry, I've come from humble little Mass- Lemister, Massachusetts. So I've never seen anybody with a hat on sideways. So anyway, every day he did the same thing to me. Every day I had to do all of that stuff. And unloading the containers was great. You had to do the toilets every day? Every day. How long were you there? I ended up being there for about two years before joining Winebow. But um, after a little while... And he was beating me down. I won. And I, oh, yeah? and I became the manager. I became his right-hand man. And it was an insane educational process. He was always trying to sell the unique and different, but also it was the time when we were selling, you know, 82 Bordeaux Futures for $360. And a case. A case, yeah. yeah. And we had the house white wine was Creole Batar Montrachet from Fontaine Gagnard. Yeah, yeah, I know that one. For 300 bucks a case. So anyway, it, it was a great time, and Bill still to this day is, you know, inspirational to me. But it was a unique period, and after that I decided to get into wholesale. So you, you went to Winebow for a while, right? I did. I joined Winebow in 1986. Um, I got that job, I think, with with very good luck. I called an hour every day asking him for the job till he finally gave it to me. And I don't feel like I was skilled for it, but you know, I think when my had persistence. Winebow started. Like it, was- it says eighty on the website, but I, I bet it was the early eighties that they really started to be, you know, a company. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, it worked out of the garage, I guess, of Leonardo's house. I think when I joined, the company was. Po- you know, starting to become real. I think it was a $5 million company. They had a new space and uh, it was just a great time because Italian wine was just starting to begin to get out of what I call the Bartolino, Rianiti, yeah. Yeah, straw basket, Chianti belt. And uh, Leonardo was so passionate about making this happen and his passion translated to us. And uh, we were all Because it's not talked about much anymore now that it's fairly big, you know, kind of successful company people don't talk about that level of it like the excitement you know but it was happening that was a different time yeah yeah we would have meetings like how do we get Chianti out of the straw basket how do we you know do this how do we do that and and it was just a great vibe everybody there worked really hard and everybody worked so hard that the other person next to you worked really hard and it was just this incredible culture and it's one of the things that stays with me today and that i i feel that i helped uh, you know it's part of me and helped carry it forward and uh leonardo was always there being a real great cheerleader and uh also, events would happen after work, and including a lot of them ending at uh, Leonardo's Grappa Bar uh-huh, in uh-huh. the basement, <laughs> which uh, would uh, often make us all sleeping over, you know, in the different chairs. Couches, oh, yeah, and, no way. You're yeah. sleeping in his den and stuff? Everybody, yeah. We like were all passed out in a pool yeah. table? Oh, yeah, everybody. Some people got the beds. The seniority got the beds. You know, I was usually on the floor, you know. but there Gives you a lot of incentive to go up the ladder. You know what I mean? Like, ah, oh, I'm tired of sleeping on the pool table. <laughs> you know, it was a it was a really sales good time. manager. So, what was in the bag at that point? I mean, what was what were you trying to break in through people? Giacosa? And- well, no, no, no. We had a Capilano, and oh, we wow. had Giuseppe Muscarello, and we were had 
Cantalupo in the early days when Cantalupo was really flavorful. I mean, not that's not today, but it's changed. And the early ones were great. And, um, you know, it wasn't the easiest thing to, to crack the natural, you know, the, the traditional Nebbiolo belt, you know, I mean, to get in there and do it. It was just, uh, we were trying Especially hard. Especially at but, that moment. But later you really associated with that, I think. Yeah, I think you know, with you kind of, selections, we really turned that thing around. Giacomo and, and Giuseppe Mascarello, and it seemed like the momentum started to flow. Yes, I think it was seeded here for a big, giant national awareness that exists today. So but, you, you don't think traditional style Nebbiolo was like uh, a West Coast thing? You think it was a New York... Like, I think it got seated here. You know, I've heard that from other people, you know, not associated with us that, you know, said that, you know, New York did it and uh, it became big everywhere. But again, I don't have the statistics to back that up, but that's what I've seen. So, so what was happening at the time you would pour it and people would be like, this is bitter. Or what would happen, like in the Weinbo days? Like, well, how, how would it go down? I don't, you know, I, you know. Truthfully, I can't remember it all exactly. But, well, the you know, people bar would, people would like to you. <laughs> people would like them, and they buy them. They didn't sell, you know. And uh-huh. It just, it just was the time that you know what we were selling a lot of was the Sicilian. I mean, um, yes, uh, wine from uh, like Tascadal Marita. No, it was uh, no. We had that one, but no, it was the the Notre Panaro uh-huh. and the Salice yeah. Salentino that by Cosimo Torino. And, right. and back in the early days, they were really made different. I think I've they had were, old Notre Panaro. It's really good, actually. Yeah, yeah so with we like were, ten years on it. Exactly. So we were just that was our entry. That was the what you would call maybe the entry drug into the new world. You know, well, a little say. riper, you know, Southern Italy style, little you know? little deeper. I could yeah. see that making sense. A little more polish. So after Weinbo? Well, eventually, you know, Weinbo got uh, what I would say big. I think, I, again, my rough numbers are started at 5 million and I left at 50 million. And, and it's a natural wow. change. It's <laughs> amazing. Well, it's 250 today. Yeah. But, but I mean, on a restaurant side, you're like, well, I came in and it was $50. And then when I left, it was 55 Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it doesn't happen that way. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm just kidding. But. Yeah. You know, it's it's not like that kind of skyrocketing growth never never occurs on the, the 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 industry side unless somebody opens up like five five new outlets. But right. it, then it's a different sommelier. You know what I mean? Yes. It's not like one guy's. I mean, usually. Well, you know, Leonardo, his passion for the Italian wine started to pay off, and and then he developed a national company, and it was great. Where do you think that came from? Like his vision for that. He's from Italy, and yeah, he's he just, from Sicily. He's like, this is what people this, really yeah, drink. I mean, this is what this is my homeland. You know, right. it's really it. It was this incredibly genuine, transferable energy, and uh, I think that it's important for me because that's how I like to sell wine. He always I, seemed quite polite as well, like extremely uh, polite. You know, like it's not always the case in a wine business that people are a little bit like uh careful of their manners like he seemed like a fairly refined guy yep he uh i remember i went to a tasting once and he didn't know so much want to talk about wine in the beginning he wanted to talk about the great art monuments of italy like he opened up uh you know before we got to the cotarella he was like uh you know and this is this area of lazio and this is the great cathedral there that kind of thing like it's not every day that you go to a wine taste and they do that you know well, I think you know you've had a lot of people call on you selling wine, and I think that if it's all about wine, wine, wine alone, then you're you're not a full spectrum person to talk about different things. And I mean, I think that's what makes a good salesperson is being able to talk about the culture, 
talk about, even if it's talk about the sports scores, but you know what I mean, to be able to connect. To Make the human gap. Different. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things that I, I, I heard, uh, I, you know, you're one of the most complimented guys I know in the business from other salesmen. Other, uh, I would say Mark Hutchins, who you may not remember anymore, mm-hmm. David okay. Newland, and you are the people that you hear other salespeople say, unbelievable. Like, I, I just, you know, that guy. And uh, one of the things that someone said about you one time is, like, he has a way of getting into the mind of a buyer that's almost seamless. And uh, it's, it's, it's not, you don't notice what's going on. He just makes it happen. He makes a connection with the buyer, and he understands what they want kind of almost before they do. Um, so is that kind of part of it, like making the human connection for you in a sense and like providing people with the wine, but it's more about understanding the person or? Yes, I, but it also has to be genuine. So yeah. that's the key thing is that I, I feel for myself personally, I'm I'm very genuine. I'll tell them, if even if I own the company, I'll tell them I don't like the wine. Because, you know, of course, even owners buy wine that are not all that good when they arrive and stuff. So I've always been very honest, very concerned about the other person but at the end of the day you're a wine buyer i'm a wine seller so let's get down to business i mean right that's just you know that's what you do you buy i sell that's well i remember one time i i was like mike just recommended a couple of things that i could pour by the glass and the things you recommended were baller like uh, uh francesco rinaldi rosat Dolcetto d'Alba, which is always good that particular vintage of it was like for the price just smoking and, uh, you know, it was obvious that you'd steered me right. And I think those are the kind of things that can kind of help. I mean, you know, everyone's pressed for time and you're like, hey, tell me what I should be pouring. And you seem to like get it in a way that a lot of other people are kind of like, oh, I don't know what you mean. Or I don't know what you like or stuff. Or they have you know? agendas forced down, them, which is what really can hurt a company, I think. Yeah. So the, the sales incentive, like Friday meeting where you're like, guys, we got to hit the pavement. And, you know, like, you know, you should be putting this in your bag. That's the part that kind of like gets in between genuine understanding. Yeah, not should. You have to put this in your bag, which just happens to a lot of companies. So, But anyway, so I, w- I was looking for a new home. Uh, kind of, and uh, you know, I I knew Doug Polaner, I knew David Bowler. I mean, obviously, I, I didn't even know really anything about Michael Skernick wines because they seemed to be me to be like an underground company. Which is was that good. true? Oh, it's absolutely true. When I started uh, at Michael Skernick wines, they didn't even hand out inventories or price lists. Really? Yes. But that's and, not the only time because you told me another company was like that too, where maybe, they didn't yeah. have the that information but you know a company doing so good no price list anyway and we'd just set up discount structures basically the brothers skernick were really smart they started as like mainly a restaurant company which is right. really brilliant and I now feel like look at that's look at totally today. what they do yeah they you know they target the two three four star restaurant market yeah and below and now they target everything i mean their yeah. company is, is is great but it, again I joined, I asked, you know, to have some adjustments like this, you know, price list, price, you know, discount structures for retailers. And and I became the top rep the first month. And I stayed the top rep every month until, you know, the great David Newland joined and handed him that baton. And uh, I, I feel like uh, at least in the late 90s, there was a real sense that we were going to make uh, wines in restaurants in terms of their fame, like with, especially with cold caps, California, and then they would branch out into like retail sales. You know, it was like things were allocated to restaurants to like make the reputation and then it would go more into the retail later. Um, and sometimes retailers were never allowed to get them. Do you feel like that that strategy really started to, to like uh, become the norm where people wanted to sell to 
the on-premise and then get it to off-premise later down the road? Yeah, or never get it. I yeah. mean, I remember at Weinbo, we had Sonoma Couture, and it was like, you know, when it was its golden days. Yeah. And then, I mean, the retailers, you know, man, they were so upset. As a matter of fact, I'm super close with Acromerrill. It was one of my great relationships. And 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 it happened at Weinbo because they needed to have Sonoma Couture, and I found a way to get it for them. And they've never forgot it. And it's, but it's just, it's, it's just, I think it's a way to do it, and I think if it works, it's great. I don't know about in this eco- in economy right now. If, right, you know, I feel like we've gotten away from it a little bit, but you know, with with Skarnik targeting the the those kind of relationships on the restaurant side, it feels like also with the emphasis on California that they had that that, that kind of worked hand in glove oh, for yeah. a long time. Absolutely, and then they picked up the Grazia, and they had you know Kermit Lynch at the time, and. But what they really had was a great culture. I have to say, I, I still talk to the to Michael and Harmon, and um, I have the hugest respect for them because they had a culture at the time where it was just, you know, again, like the early days in Weinbow, with really just everybody really working hard and excelling for a common goal. Lots of great balls of wine pop. They were incredibly generous. They always had the, they were always, you were allowed to have your wives or your best, you know, your significant other events, and they always threw these great, uh, parties, 10th anniversary, rent places, get bands. I mean, it was really great. And, uh, you know, um, it seems like the difference between a Skarnik tasting and every other tasting is that a Skarnik tasting really does feel like a party. Like, yeah. even if it's a smaller tasting, not even always the big portfolio tasting. I mean, the big portfolio tasting, you see so many people that you want to see, and it's such a great vibe. You know, it's somewhat hard to even get to the wine sometimes. You know, it's a it's quite the scene. Yes, and I think that you know that that company culture really carries through that way. And it, I, I think it lasts uh, till to today. You know? till, I mean, no, I, I yeah, agree. I mean, all the way through. So you know, I knew people. I know people who are new there, and they love it. So after that, you know, I was recruited by Doug Palaner and his wife to become a partner at Palaner Selections, and that was a, a great. Uh, so Doug had worked with you at, at Skarnik, and then he yes. was like, "I want to do my thing." Yes, yes. And uh, I joined about 18 months after they opened. And we really tried to be different and uh, focusing a lot of uh, traditionalism. And we uh, picked up Lopez de Heredia. Yeah. And, so uh, who, how did that story go about? Like, you know, well, how was, what was the foundation story behind finding that producer, which now is like... Da, 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 da. <laughs> well, this is how I remember seeing it. As I'm leaving Skernick, I saw samples outside of uh, Michael's door. Oh, yeah. And I was like, uh-oh, I know that there are also samples going over to, you know, Polina Selection. No way. So, you know, I'm like, let's see who, hopefully they don't get it and we get oh, it. Oh, I thought you were going to say you, like, stole them or something <laughs> from the door. Like David Geffen style, like, you know, where the, the letter comes in saying he never graduated from college and he stole it out of the mailroom, that kind of thing. Wow. I should try that. <laughs> no, well, so anyway, we got it and it was hard. It was very hard. I mean, that those wines, as you know, and everyone knows now, are, are fantastic, magical, um, unique. Um, really, like to me, like old Obreon white sometimes in the whites, and mm-hmm. and, and mucinous sometimes in the in the red. But the first time we tried to do it, I mean, we were taking bottle after bottle out, and people are looking at us like we were, you know, born cross-eyed. And yeah, we actually, and they really weren't that expensive at the time. I remember no. selling like eighty fives for like one twenty one on the list. You know, yeah, but I'm just talking about the regular, uh, the reserve level, mm-hmm. and I forget the price, but it was just hard. We actually closed out the first vintage of rosé. Wow, really? Yeah, 
it's it's hard to imagine because now they're actually uh, short of rosé for a while and they don't have any for to offer anybody for a bit. Yes, somebody forgot to fill out the paperwork. Oh, really? It's Is that years what of no rosé. No way, just yeah. the paperwork thing. Yeah, you have to fill out a paperwork that says you know I'm going to make X amount of rosé, white right, and red. Declare it. Yeah, and I think they forgot. They just left off the rosé box. <laughs> they forgot to check it. So I don't know. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think there's no rosé for years. I thought it was more like uh, oh the weather didn't accommodate and we're oversold in the market. It's no, it's more no. like yeah. Oops. Yeah, so if the reds seem a little lighter in the next couple of years, there could be a reason. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, maybe they should make a blend. Um, but anyway, so that was a great that was a great thing. But also the biggest thing was I've been friends with Joe Dresner from I can't remember when. It's hard to even pinpoint it. It might I think I can pinpoint it to like a tasting that uh, Jacob Halper did, you know, a wine group, and uh, Joe and I just gravitated towards each other. And you know, it was super exciting to merge his portfolio at Polaner and. Uh, I think we grew it sevenfold in a, in a short period of years. I mean, it, went, it got pretty I big. It's. I mean, in terms of selections, yeah. you know, the company's not big, like, but the number of wines, number of SKUs is it's pretty awesome. Yeah, now they're off to Germany. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Who would have thought? You know, I would have never. Because I remember the time when we sat down together, and you're like, you know, they actually have the benchmark Pulsar. But, you know, it's a little rough to sell in the market. And, you know, what you were talking about was Ovenois, which at the time you could pour by the glass. And, I know. And now you have to, you know, fight people for, like, literally fisticuffs in the retail shop for a bottle. I know? know. I used to get an allocation, and now I have to uh, do the same thing. So, you know, one of the things you said about Lopez is sometimes it was Oprion, sometimes it was Moussini. But, you know, it's interesting you said sometimes. Because I feel like there was some bottle variation, you know, older wine, of course, but also there, you know, some bottles were this, some bottles were that, and I, I know Joe, especially in early days, you know, some things came back, you know, in terms of the thing. Was that a battle you guys had to fight? Like, was that one of the first times, especially coming off the California Jag, where it was like, oh, things aren't always the same. Like this, this, this bottle shows this way, that bottle shows that way. I think that was there, but you know, if it wasn't Mucini, it was uh, Amarus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was never bad. It just you weren't sure what was going to show up that day. Absolutely, you know, and 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 you know, there's that there's those folks that believe that if you drink a wine during the full moon or the no moon, yeah, the yeah, wine will yeah. change. I tried that with Lopez. Oh and, yeah, and they tasted different. Oh, is that nothing, true? Nothing, same glasses and same stuff? everything. I and I did it for like three straight months. That's the Wheeler right there. I love that you did that. <laughs> That's classic. Because you're also the guy. Remember we were talking about that thing, uh, the Fiorano one time. Yeah, yeah, we did that too. And and you were like, you know, before we did the dinner, you're like, sadly, I think you just cost me a lot of money. Because then after hearing about it you knew that you had to like check it out for yourself like there was no like oh yeah receive wisdom whatever no you were like you were in there for a case of mixed wine like yeah and uh i think i've always loved to search for anything weird and unique and natural and traditional and real wine or whatever you want to say there's no really good name to use for it but there's a lot of gems and that was a gem you know lopez was a gem and it's great that it's continuing to grow so how else besides developing relationships as friends, which is probably just a huge part of it, as you said, but how else do you make the connection for people when you're trying to change a palette of a place, like of a of a city? You're like, hey, I'm selling to you guys. What I'm selling to you isn't what necessarily you've been drinking for a while. I love it. What do you do? I mean, how do you do that? 
Well, I think it's, <clears throat> you talk about the history of the place, you show some maps, you sh show where the wine would be good. And remember, think about this town where Gruner Veltliner didn't exist, right. right? And now look at it. I mean, I don't know if it's going up or down or sideways or whatever. Yeah, now I don't know. But I remember that there was a moment where it was, everybody poured it by the glass. Yeah. And the, well, there's a moment where everyone thought you were weird when you, we were, when you were opening it, you know? Oh, is that true? Well, you have to start, you yeah. know, the first yeah. ball has got to get popped, you know? I mean, when I moved to town, the Austrian wine scare happened. Yeah, and you know, eighty-five. Yeah, the shop that I had had those wines on the on the shelf. We really had no them. way. Yes. So what did you do? You just threw them off, threw, threw them away. away. Yeah. So anyway, so from that period, it was just you know took a while to bring it back. But let me ask you. Okay, so you were talking about eighty-two futures and things. I mean, I think. There was a market back in the old days where the guy bought his Leville Barton every year. And, you know, he didn't necessarily, like, search out the new thing. He just, oh, the new vintage is out. Send me a case. I'll put it in a cellar right next to all the other cases. Now it seems like a given that things are going to come out of nowhere and blow up. I mean, when did that culture change? I, I, they don't seem to be the same thing to me. It seems like a fundamental change happened. And it super accelerated in the last, say, six, seven years. You would have been in a really almost unique spot to watch it based on your career. I mean, why did that happen? Is it just a function of pricing or? Well, I think the new media is a big part of it. There's blogs mm -hmm. and there's, um, you know, the, the people that write reviews and like, for example, of course, Robert Parker, but now Robert Parker has Galoni, which, you know, he seems to be to me like a person who you can trust, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, a lot, you know, so there, and there's, then, then there's people then share this information. I tasted this, I did that, I did, you know, and so it's easier, I think, to get the word out, you know, you don't have to do every little thing yourself. So I think that's the big change. So those conversations started to happen more. People got to hear about some of the smaller regions because yeah. some of the older stories had already been told so many times that there was a chance to tell new stories for new content. Yeah, plus young people, what do they want? Yeah. Like we make a joke that, you know, I, I can't have what everybody else has. What, what do you got for me that's new and different? I want to be the only one that has it. And, you know, everyone's really trying in the restaurant and retail world, it seems, to have things that are different. So there's a much more thirst for new varietals. You could bring a new varietal out and they're like, okay, how many can I get? I love it. Can I have all of it? Can I get half of it? Can you keep it away from here? Can you do this for me? So, Have you seen the sommelier age go down? I mean, are we seeing younger people in buying positions in restaurants than maybe it was 10 years ago? Well, you know, you got to remember that I've been in uh, Portland, Oregon pretty much full time. So I don't know what's going on here 100%, yeah. but there it's incredibly young. I mean, and as you know, none of these people have tried any of the stuff that we've that we, we grew up, up on. Yeah, yeah so, they're like Quabatar Marche. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, you know, I, which is fine. It's just different. Yes, it is. It is. So I mean, we grew up in that era. We tried lots of stuff. You know, when it was really inexpensive. I mean, I remember when I was in retail, my first ball of Petrus was seventeen ninety nine. Yeah, know? yeah, so yeah. It was easy to take that home, even if you were making five dollars an hour. Right. It wasn't like the percentage of how much you had to save of your own paycheck was still doable, even though, you yeah. know, it was considered expensive even back then for wine, per se. So I don't know. You tell me, what do you think the age of the sommelier here is here? Well, here's yeah. what I see. Yeah. There was a generation, all right? The Jonases, the Larry Stone, the Roger de Gorn, 
and and those guys are still around. Right. And then there was a secondary, Jean-Luc Ledoux, Raj Parr, Tim Kopech. And those guys are around too. But then I feel like the younger set, almost I want to say my generation, who are a little bit younger than that, and then less, the turnover is so high. Like the the move out of the business becomes so much quicker that not necessarily are they still around. Like, um, or yeah, like they're really, maybe they went to the sales side or maybe they just got out of the business. Like, I think those guys like Larry Stone, I just don't think he could have done anything else. Like that had to be the thing. And he, and it was so hard to get that set up back then that only a guy like that would get through all the, the no, you know what I mean? Like all the sense that there is no sommelier culture in this this uh, country and you have to make it otherwise it doesn't exist the fact that someone made all those hurdles the only guy who could have done it is a guy who couldn't have done anything else like he was destined to do it you know and of course he's never given it up but I feel like as it's become almost more accepted it's also become easier to leave and I think that younger people don't necessarily stay in the game for as long. And there's, there's very definitely not the same culture where there's a sense you're supposed to stay on the floor all that time. Like you're not supposed to be like Larry still at Trotters, like opening bottles on the floor. You know what I mean? Like it's, I, I would say it's different, I, I, but the, the people who do stick around are you, David Newland, Michael Skarnick, you know, the guys on the sales side, the guys on the buy side. Yeah. It seems like more glamorous. and Everybody knows who you are for three years. And then you're gone, and another crop of young kids come in who are also hot to try. And there's not necessarily a, um, like, it's not like an academic world where people are, like, citing you for the work you did. Like, oh, this guy before me did a th- uh, thing that was really interesting. Instead, it's more like, hey, history starts now. You know what I mean? That's part of the reason we started this thing, because we wanted to hear some of the stories that happened before yesterday, you know? Cool. But I mean, what do you think? That's well, I, th- I think for sure. I see it. I mean, you know, I th- one of my favorite is Julia Pope. I mean, you know, she that's is a, a good example, a great person who's been doing it years and years and years. And that list to me is one of the best in town. And uh, there's a all aroundness to it, but also like um, it still hits all the niches while being all aroundness that I think is super difficult. Actually, it it comes off as easy when you look at it. It's like a guy making a great catch in baseball. You're like, oh, it made it look so easy, but actually, it's that's actually pretty hard. Yeah, with all those wands. Yeah. So, what's the Portland scene like? You were there. Uh, well, we. Um, is it kind of like the Portlandia spoof? I mean, I mean, what's the real it story? It is a little bit like it. So I try, you know, I try not to watch Portlandia because I. Oh I, yeah. Because the family, my wife loves it there. My kids love it there. Um, we've been there now a year and a little bit, and the company is doing great. You know, we, you know, I, I think it's the, our greatest accomplishment. It's it's and it's in part because I have a local partner named Don Heisteman who is just great, and so the two of us in less than a year have put together a portfolio that would be, if you put it in New York terms, it's part Bowler, part T. Edwards, part vintage Skernick wines, and a sprinkling of Palaner all within a year. And uh, so we've creating a really huge buzz. But how is the scene? It's, it's, it's like what you said. I mean, there's a lot of young kids that become wine buyers, but they, there's very few, and they're on the hand, that only do wine. The rest of them have to work the floor, and it's just a side job. So, so they're like waiters who buy. Waiters who buy, yeah. They, you know, there's, you know, one hand, you could say that people are dedicated all time to do wine. It's just, 
And so, like you say, I mean, what are they going to do? Eventually open their own restaurant? That's what we hope, right? right. And then if you have a connection with them, then, then your wines will do well. Because you you're so. saying that's not a sustainable gig as you get older. Like at, no. What if it you makes kids, sense at 25, yeah. but it doesn't make sense at, you know, 38 maybe. Absolutely not. I mean, it may for some, but, you know, the economy in Portland is very, very quiet. And it's a bottle state, a COD state, yeah. which means, you know, there's no discount. So if someone wants 100 cases, which no one ever buys... Or one ball, it's the same price. So there's really no incentive and to COD. buy 100 cases like there is in New York, where you're like, yeah. hey, I buy 20 cases, I get it for less, so I'm going to buy the 20. Even though I don't have space, I'm going to find space. Right. You're saying people could buy two bottles, and that's easier for them. And they're like, yeah, well, send me eight deliveries this week because, you know. Yeah. It's two you know, two deliveries. You know, If it's a pour, you might get an order on Friday for six more bottles. but then That's be- insane. I remember this guy, uh, he had lived in new york and then he went to portland and uh and someone was like yeah i'll take six of this and three of that and four of that and you know five of that and he put the order in and then he got this incredibly angry phone call because you know six cases had shown up and four cases had shown up and because he just thought she was talking about cases and and she was actually really upset and like a little scandalized because she was presented this thing that she had to pay on arrival you know what i mean and it was a number considerably higher than she thought it was going to be so she was a little upset at him and he just didn't never heard of somebody ordering by the bottle before yeah, no, a funny story that I would, before we moved, I talked to a Rosenthal rep and he said, yeah, I went to this one account with the Karema and mm-hmm, yeah. uh, the, the guy said, oh man, this is the most incredible wine I've ever had. Love it. I can't, I can't wait to get behind this. Send me three bottles. Oh yeah. And yeah. So then a year later, he goes back to the same account and, uh, a year. A year later. Oh, man, you're the guy with that crema. I love that wine. There they are, the three bottles. No way. Yes. We keep them up here as a trophy. It, luckily, you know, we have, you know, Kermit Lynch, Louis Dresner, you know, things like this. So we're not getting, we're getting some turnover. Not that Rosenthal's probably, now Rosenthal's doing much better. They're doing you know? great now. Yeah. They're yeah. like gangbusters. Yeah. I mean, it's never been better from, yeah. from what I hear from them. Yeah, no, no, it is. It's great wine. It also seems like the allocation getting much tighter. Like, you know, allocation for Capilano, allocation for Linier. These things are pretty tight. You know what I mean? Like, please, please, may I have some? Please? Like that kind of thing. Not like it kind of used to be. Here in New York. Yeah, in New York, yeah. And I guess I should say, I mean, you know, when I worked other markets, I was surprised how allocations were so much bigger in Florida than they are in New York. I mean, do you have that as well? Where it's just like there's not, people aren't hitting that ceiling where they can just get whatever they need. They don't have yeah, well, in Portland, I mean, luckily, I won't mention names, but we have some local reps for certain importers who live there. So we, you know, we know where they live. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. You know, and they work the market there. So we are, are you we feel threatening lucky. to like TP their house if they no, don't give you, you know, the. I mean, they, you know, they live there. You right, know? right. That's part of the community. They so have to it, take the. They have to the see these. Go to these restaurants. They have to, you know, it's not like they can live in Chicago and just say, oh, you deal with it. So there is a wine culture there, though. Huge. It's gigantic. You know, it's the number two market for Prodotori de Barbaresco in the country. No way. Yep. It's direct there. So yeah, because there is a, it's from retail. Because there's a retailer that's always a Nebbiolo Prima that's big in Portland. Does well, a lot of work with traditional style. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Lemma Wine Company, an old wine company, and they have it direct you know, Vias has it for the rest of the country. Yeah. So, so it's a little cheaper as well. It might be saying. a little cheap, but it's just, it's been promoted for years mm-hmm. and it's everywhere. Because they own it that way. Yeah. That's like their thing. Yeah. 
because uh you know, I remember when you went there, this was before Portlandia, really before anyone was talking about it. I, I used to live in the, the area, so I knew what you were talking about. But you came back on a on a trip to find some good American wine, you know, some Oregon Pinot Noir or something. And you came back and you're like, yeah, I decided to move. You know, and you'd lived here, what, like 25, 30 years, 25 yeah. years? 20, <coughs> 27. And uh, you're like, yeah, we saw a nice house, decided to buy it. You know, you just kind of like rolled up and threw down a check. And you're like, yeah, well, we own a house there now, so we're leaving. Like... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, when when I uh, left Planner Selections, I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do. And at one point, uh, my wife and I talked about taking our kids on a two-year trip around the world. Oh, you and, did? Okay. Yeah, and, and, and then we sat down and going, like, wait a minute, are we really there yet? And uh, so we thought, what's the next best thing? Let's move to a city. And I knew that the Louis Dresner company was having problems and that that would become available. On, on the West. On the West. Oh, see, so I, no, was a oh, the secret comes out. Yeah, so yeah, all right. I knew that I had that in, 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 in you know, Joe had promised Had me. you already also stolen the local Lopez samples from the distributor's door? Like, you're like, oh, the guy who's going to do Lopez in Portland, yeah, I don't know what happened to those samples. Uh, sadly, the person that does Lopez is the first wholesaler to ever do Lopez. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, so it's owned? It's owned. Hey, so let me ask you a question, just to get back on the wine side a little bit. Uh, you know, every so often I hear this term spoof, and people are like, hey, this is spoofy, this is spoofy. And uh, if I recall, I think you were the first guy that uh, I ever heard use that term. Is there any possibility that you may have coined it? I, uh, you know, the early part, you know, the lawyers are still trying to work out between <laughs> Harmon Skernick and Michael Wheeler, Inc., yeah. but... Uh, uh, Harmon brought it back as the folklore goes from a winery in California where it meant, you know, over, the, the, I think it was Montalena that was not over oak. Uh -huh. But the current stuff. word, spoofilated, is, I have to say, my word. I changed it. So it's you, you just changed about it from spoof to spoofilated? Yeah, spoofilated, you know. And you're like, this is, this is a, an act of being this. Which maybe you could break it down for me as the I think it's the it, Webster it, spoof. It varies, but you know, a wine that is a beverage versus a wine that is a, a wine of terroir. You know, example is spin cones, mm -hmm. reverse osmosis. You know, you which can, maybe a lot of people don't realize is part of the winemaking process for a lot of wineries. Oh, there's a company in California. You just go there and you give them your wine, and you you they give you a flow chart, and you say how many points do you want, and how do you do it, and right. out you go with your little package. You know, but I I also have heard that they've uh, from certain people that there's Syrah growing in in, uh, in um, Barolo, uh, and look what happened in Tuscany. It right. was it's fact that they were putting Merlot in. Brunello. Right. That's spoofilated. That's not what Brunello is. Brunello is supposed to be Sangiovese. Did that surprise you when that broke, that story? It, not really, because I've heard even worse stories, which I'm not going to get into. I mean, But that, I guess what I'm saying, not that we didn't know it was there, but did it surprise you that someone cared suddenly? Because I felt like it was an open thing. I, I'm, I'm glad it happened. It didn't surprise me, but I think it, it, it's important. I mean, because Sangiovese is not my favorite grape, but when you have a real well-made, traditionally done one, they're fantastic. So I'm happy about that. Um, let them call them Vino de Tavola. Let them call, you know, mix Syrah with Nebbiolo. I don't care, you know, put it in 350% new oak and 
you know just be transparent single bottle barrels you know coat the inside the the bottle with some wood (laughs) i don't care what you do just but tell you tell it what it is like if you look at a randall graham label now in the back he tells you everything yeah you know it's like basically the only guy in california yeah it's too much maybe but it's real and i like it so he's telling you what he does and i think that's important um do you think that's why you've had some success selling things that are a little bit new to people? Because you didn't try to pretend like they were the same old thing? You explained exactly why they were different? Yeah, I mean, I think there's wines that are modern that they're spoofalicious, you know? I mean, you know, 254% new oak and certain wineries in Tuscany, but, I, you know, you can enjoy it, you know? And I don't care what people drink. I mean, honestly, I'm not one of those people that you must, must, must get onto it's this. It's not a moral thing. You know, right, real wine movement or die, you know, we're going to run you over. If you want to take home a bottle of Malbec and have a wonderful time, please do it. Just don't invite me over. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's let's talk about that because I know you have had, you know, more than a lot of people's lifetime share of great wine, what anyone might think of as great wine. What are some of the standouts for you? What are some of the wines you're like, whoa, that one took the breath away? I think old old Burgundy is, is, is magical. I think old... Nebbiolo from the 40s. You know, I don't think you can drink a much older. Boy, not a lot of people would have called 40s. Here I was thinking, you're going to say 50s. No, 40s. He goes that far back. Yes. Well, you know, Capilano's hold up. Yeah. Um, but I also just love Loire wine. I mean, to me, Muscadet is one of my favorites, and it's one of the greatest deals. You can age it. Um, and so you can buy something for 10 or $11, $12, $13, and go back to it in 10 years, and you're like, wow, amazing. So... It was really great, you know, working with Louis Dresner and still working with them today. And um, those are the wines that I think I gravitate towards every day to drink. You know, can't afford Burgundy every day, but, you know, definitely reach for them when I can. Do you think that sometimes people appreciate a more directness in what are considered great wines now? Like, um, let me put it this way. People really like uh, the punch of high acid minerality now. Is there a more of a sense that like direct flavor rather than kind of broad um, round flavor is kind of the move? Because I, uh, you know, you see it stylistically in so many different categories where all of a sudden, you know, people seem to think that something that's old and nuanced is really good, but then also something young and super zippy is really good. Absolutely. I think even me, myself, my pal is moving towards, you know, drinking more young and zippy. I'm not looking for the fossils anymore, you know, which is... Well, that's amazing that you would say that, you know, because you are the king fossil. You're like Mr. Jurassic Park. Yeah, like I know. You've, you've done your share. I still do it, and I've we've helped... You know, do it here in New right. York with You've, all those old wine lists right, that we right. helped uh, drink. Well, you're dry. a plunderer. Of, yeah. I mean, I guess it should be said that you're yes. you're like uh, you're like the Tomb Raider of of restaurants that aren't well known. That you go in and you scope out that they still have some bottles from the old days, and you take them down. Yeah, and well, you're you know, you're really good about keeping that a secret too. <laughs> you're not out in the street being like, "Hey, check out blah 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 place." You know, no, no, no. But those wines, there, there's a price list. They have a list, and right. somebody's got to drink them. And right. So I think mm-hmm. it's important to do that. But like you said, I I think that that is the the freshness is a is a great word, and I think that's why I like the fresher side of Gruner Veltliner, the lighter ones, not the Wachau. You know, just the because there was a time almost you kind of gave up on Austria. I remember I did. You know, I think it's the you know the FX peaklerness of the wines. They're mm-hmm. not for me anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't love that super ripeness. I just want that grape myself. I want it slurpable. Sometimes but, I can't understand how a Gruner's one grape. 
like it seems like there's such a diversity of flavors and styles. I mean, I guess you could say the same thing about Chardonnay, but uh, I, I don't always get how they're actually supposed to be family connected. Like, yeah, because they can be quite different. I, I don't know if there's just a terroir thing or wine winemaking technique can change so much, but you know, because there's different places to make it in Austria. But like, I sometimes I wonder if it's going to be like, you know, Sangiovese. There's the you know Sangiovese Grosso. There's Pugnelli Gentile. You know, it's not all the same thing necessarily, mm-hmm. and it's kind of acknowledged, but you never hear about that with Gruner. And sometimes I wonder. I don't know. You have to you have to get an expert on on yeah. that, but. Um... I think, you know, like in, when I moved to Oregon, I was didn't have the greatest feelings for Oregon wine. I mean, I didn't think anything bad, but, you know, like Irie, old Irie, great, you know, mm-hmm, have a bunch mm-hmm. of other things, great, you know. But, I, you know, I was like, where's like, you know, the, 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 the zippy, fresh, acidic mm-hmm. wine? And I ran, you know, when I ran to Cameron, whose wines I really love, um, I ran into this guy, Scott Frank, and he was going to open a Loire Valley winery in Oregon, you know, just focusing on Loire varietals. And I was like, which is unusual. Unusual. You know, I think this, you know, this Gamay planted now that he planted in a biodynamic vineyard, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, this guy's nuts. You know, I mean, like, I can't, and it's impossible. I mean, this is like, you know, this is a penostocracy, and it's, uh, you know, serification. Sure. It's all this, like... Well, stuff. That's funny. Can I... I, I, may, uh, I think you just coined new ones for me. Like, the serification of wine. Yeah, and the, well, in the penostocracy, you know, once Irie came in, everybody else followed that model. And yeah. I'm not saying it's like Mandavi and Napa. It. Yeah, it's just, but that's... You know, where's the different? And then that's why, you know, I was waiting to meet with Don Heisteman and I had a glass of this Teutonic wine company, Rosé, 10 degrees alcohol, incredible acidity, 100% naturally made. And I was like, wow. And then I tracked them down. And now, luckily, we represent them in Oregon. And I hooked T. Edwards up with them here. And it's just like, it's a beacon light. And I like instantly called up Scott Frank and I was like, okay. I want to be a partner. Is the West Coast going to go more in that direction of grape varieties that aren't the norm? I hope so. I mean, you know, you might have heard of Brock Sellers, yeah. you know, and so I haven't uh, tried the wine, but because uh, yeah. they seem to disappear quite quickly. Yeah, we just we just picked up some for Oregon. We'll be selling it, and you know, they're it just they're fresh, you know, and and uh, you know, my partner Don Heisman has a wine called Beb May, which you know is. 12 degree alcohol Cab Franc from California, and it's delicious, you know. So there's. I think it's going to happen more and more. I'm hoping so, you know. So you're a man who's been around the scene for, uh, you know, more than a while. And, uh, you know, open bottles of wine, good people. There's got to be a couple stories in there somewhere. What are some of the stories that stand out for you? Well, there's a a very interesting story of when I was traveling with the Dresners in France and I saw in the Wine Spectator a review of a a restaurant restaurant and it's called Le Chaudron. Um, across from Tan Hermitage, which I probably don't pronunciate right, but and it looked great. And supposedly, you know, Raymond Trollot, who had retired, still makes a barrel of wine, and I think that's where it goes. So, oh, okay. so we were like, okay, yeah, that'll be a good start. So we arrive, and of course, up on the chalkboard is the current vintage of Raymond Trollot, San Josef. And no way. Like, yeah. So it was like, you know, house house poor. So we started with a ball of that. Have you ever had the white? I don't think I have had the wine. Me neither. You know? I, I mean, I drank a lot of there. it, but... I don't think it's ever here, you know what I mean? Yeah, they might have had it, but, you know, we had that. And uh, then the wine list, of course, is great. It's got all this old wine. I'm familiar with, again, the old wine, so I pick out the wine. I said, let's start with the 72 Chablanc. 
Okay. Yeah. No way. 72. Yeah, it was like 120 bucks or something. This is 2002 or something. And so I'm sitting at the table. I see him grab an empty bottle of 72 Shav off the shelf. No way. Behind the bar, grab a decanter, and then proceed to walk right by us and go into the kitchen. No way. Yeah. So I was like, man, that's pretty weird. Yeah. So he comes up to the table, wine's in the bottle, I mean, in the decanter, a little bit of wine in the, in the bottle, and says, here you go, and walks away. No way. So he never presented a closed bottle to you? No. So we, t- <laughs> we taste it, and uh, uh, it's like it's like Gigal Coteron White. No way. You know, and I know Gigal Coteron White. It was Gigal Coteron White. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, they're like, Michael, you sure? I was like, listen, I've been drinking this wine, this particular vintage, many times. Right. This is not the wine. Right. They're like, they could, you know, they were like afraid that I was like, you know, going to cause trouble. I was like, so no. You're with Joe Dresner and he's afraid you're going to cause trouble? Is that, is that, is that possible? I don't know. Well, remember, I don't speak French. So, uh, like, oh, I'm okay, like, you okay. know, because I, when I'm, I'm sad, sad, when I'm upset, I can't hold myself back. And this, I mean, I'm gentle and calm, but I just mean, like, I want an answer here. This yeah, is yeah, not yeah. the wine. Like, you can't Jeez. do this. This is, uh... and so, you know, then I like taste the what's left over in the bottle. It's, yeah. It's water. So he basically wet it so it looked like he did. Anyway, so I say, look, this is not the wine. I yeah. want another bottle. Yeah. He's like, no, it's the wine. I tasted it. It's the wine. It's like, no, it's not the wine. I want another bottle. So <sighs> anyway, he finally it's tiring just does it and gets the bottle and brings it to the table and slams it on the table. He goes, you you guys open it yourself or something. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, thanks. And yeah. Pour it. It's this golden color yeah, it's somewhat different than, you know it's by 572 to, to 2002 whatever it's 30 years old or 20 years i can't do math and they're like okay michael you're right and so finally he comes over and takes the wine and he goes well yeah you guys I, I i can't believe i did i made a mistake i sent the gigal coturon white to your wine to that table over there i was like which table i'd like to go have yeah a yeah but yeah 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 <laughs> Because I know, I know, I'm like making jokes like, don't order the 71 Petrus, 61 Petrus, because there's an empty bottle. Yeah, there's an empty bottle. (laughs) So it it goes on and on, but you know, we're drinking this beautiful bottle, and uh, he did apologize for making a mistake. And so, boom, then we ordered the 72 uh, Shav Red, and he's like, should I open that at the table? I was like, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. (laughs) We had such good luck with the second bottle. Let's keep that trend going. Brings it there. It's really, you know, even better than the uh, the, the white magical, as you know. Um, so we're like, yeah, still thirsty, you know. Let's order something else. So he comes over, and you could see he was like, "Damn, I didn't get him on the first one. I got to get him again." So I was like, "How about another bottle of seventy-two shop? Nope, don't have any. How about the sixty-nine shop? Nope. How about the? These are things on the list. Yeah, Cuvée Catalan. Uh, yeah, something whatever. Have don't. So what oh, about 90 La Chapelle? And like he, he looks at me and goes like, yeah, I got that one. So after all that, I see him go behind the bar. No way. Grab an empty decanter and go back into the kitchen. Unbelievable, dude. I, you know, it's, it's psychotic. He had to yeah. win. He had to get these Americans or whatever. I don't know. But anyway. This so, guy's like the Sisyphus of, of trying to sell, uh, uh, you know. Like empty bottles of wine. So he brings this one to the table with the cork in it. Oh, yeah? Yes. So he 
took it out and put it back in or what did he do no so this is it got pretty twisted so he opens it he pours it for us and goes that's 90 la chapelle and walks away i'm looking at it going like this is 1978 cornas because you can still see the capsule whatever but this is old semi cornas which was fine but not for the price and i'm not being ripped off you right. know what i mean yeah because cornas especially you know not that long ago was much cheaper yeah it was good, it was a good wine but yeah. it was old and faded and like we uh-huh. were we were ready for 90 Le yeah you just had shop 72 yeah. you're probably so, ready for some yeah so i say to him look this is not the wine it's like it is the wine i was like <laughs> Look, it's it's kind of interesting how if you hold up the bottle yeah. that you brought us, I can see where you peeled the label off. No way! You didn't actually weren't smart enough to take the ninety La Chapelle label, which you soaked off back there, and put it on top of the square oh. marking. Then you know maybe that would have given you a little hint. And ninety La Chapelle shouldn't be this this color. Look, it's only eleven years, twelve years old. And then with, so a fight started to break really? out. Not with fist like, cups. Like okay. like you know he's like I said. We're leaving. Bring us the check. Yeah. I, you know, we'll pay for everything up to now, but we're not paying for this wine. He said, right. you're, you're paying for that wine. I was like, no, we're not paying for that wine. Unbelievable. No, you, I'm going to, I'm going to write Shav. I'm going to call La Chapelle. I mean, you know, you know I mean, uh, whatever, you know, I'm going to like, I'm like, you know, now I'm like crazy. Like, right. you know, uh, so eventually he said, no, you're doing it. No, I'm not. Just he, he handed me the bill. I crunched it up and stuffed it in his front pocket. <laughs> oh, bring, yeah. You bring me the you right hold bill. This for you. And they're trying to speak in French, you know, trying to like, you know. And so eventually he just Boy, says. Boy, Dresner is the conciliator. I've never heard this story before. Harry, Harry, you calm down. Let Joe Dresner talk to him for a while, nice and calm. Uh, well... Denise was there too, and obviously she can speak the language super right, quite fluently. Well. And right. of course, and anyway, so eventually he kicked us out of the restaurant. Oh yeah, and everybody in the restaurant cheered him. No way. Yes. So I write a letter to Shav. I write a letter to uh, you know. Um, yeah, this guy's taking advantage of your reputation. And I get these things back. No, it's impossible. And then he actually took the bottle of Jabalay, the one that was the real bottle, and had them. Like analyze it. He's like, oh yes, that was Nadia La Chapelle. I mean, but that's the one that he soaked off, you know. Right. Anyway, so time goes on. A couple of years later, we're at Beaugravier. You're you know, kidding me that this goes on for a couple of years. Like this, no. it's like Withering Heights. And yeah. then Heathcliff said, <laughs> "You know Beaugravier? No, the truffle place with the amazing uh-huh. wine list. You go there. I haven't been. Yeah, it's crazy. You go there and you can drink, you know, sweet shav." wines from yeah shop, yeah you know the well old, he did make it a couple times yeah, yeah. yeah so anyway it's a great restaurant there's a guy that lives in the village you know wine store owner and so you know what we said we walked up to him and said oh i gotta tell you a story he says don't even bother telling me a story i know all about it he tried to do it to chaputier with his own wine no way yep and he eventually had to sell the restaurant he was he, so the reputation just became in tatters so, so we like to make a joke that was our fantastic dinner in, at le fraudrone and tainted hermitage hey, fraudrone <laughs> <laughs> but i mean that's i mean you you got a sense that like even though we say like oh some of these are so much younger now i just feel like that would just never happen now i mean obviously you're talking about two different countries but do you feel like the just the understanding of uh, what services and stuff would just never even allow that to even occur. I guess well, that hasn't been that long, but well, he's the owner and he was crazy. You know, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like to do it to a producer. It's one thing to try right. to get over with the crazy American gang, you know? right? That doesn't speak French and probably doesn't know, but you did now, and yeah. Oh man, 
Wow. It makes me sad just to hear stuff like that. Well, it's a nice free meal. I don't like to take anything for free, but... Yeah, thanks for the 72s. Yeah. <laughs> so it feels like you earned it, though. You know, if you have to, like, stick up for yourself that much, it's like you earned it. Michael, it was a real pleasure having you on the show. Appreciate it. And, uh, you know, best of luck with uh, Folk and Wheeler. And uh, curious to hear about the projects in Portland as they unfold. Thank you very much, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.